Well, it is uh, great to be here, and I, I really am just thrilled with the wonderful crowd. And I feel every year I look out here and see different men I've had the privilege of being with, friends I've known, some for years, some more recent. And I, I wish I could spend time with each one of you with some fellowship. It's always just a delight to see you and just encouraged in uh, your work in the ministry, your faithfulness. I remember back when I was in Bible college, I, how we'd say to each other, you know, I wonder what we'll be doing 40 years from now. Well, now I'm about there, I'm about at 40 years. And uh, it's always great looking out here to see a few classmates of mine that are still serving the Lord, and that's an encouragement 40 years later. And hallelujah, that's what it's all about. But um, we're going to just a moment look at what I would consider to be a difficult subject. It's not an easy subject to preach on. Obviously, there's younger people in the audience. It will limit a little bit of how I speak. I may have to speak in veiled terms on some issues because I certainly, I will tell young people, I tell teenagers this all the time. The greatest defense you have against moral impurity is innocence. Amen. Innocence. And I hate to admit it, the greatest problem I had in my thought life when I was growing up came from preachers. So I think it's extremely important that we're careful. I realize this is a different day than I was growing up, but I still am desiring to be careful. But at the same time, uh, people understand what we're talking about. Now, before I get into the session, I just want to say a couple practical things. And then we'll get into the session. But you can go to Romans 13 if you want to start making your way to Romans 13. And uh, many of you know I travel and work with a ministry called Minutemen Ministries have for years. Our address, et cetera, is in the front of the book, and I need to make this announcement. Every year I think I need to make this announcement. I need to say something, need to do something, and then I forget. And the next year it comes up again. The address in the book is wrong. It has been wrong for 10 years. Every year at the conference, I say, you know, I need to tell somebody about that because I am sure there's a million-dollar check somewhere that's floating around the post office that was sent to our uh, office. And if you send it, you come to me, I'll give you the correct address. Okay, but anyway, so the address isn't right, but the emails are okay, the phone number is okay. But I just mentioned that just because for 10 years I've said to myself I need to mention that. So I'm mentioning that, and I'm hoping some staff member is making a note, but I can't count on that either, okay, because they've got a lot going on as well. But uh, so I wanted to mention that. And something else that's a little unusual this year, obviously God has done a wonderful thing for all of us evangelists, 2020 and now into 21 has been a challenge. Uh, I've had several cancellations, not that that has been bad, God has been in everything. I recognize some people have not been able to have the team because they're in different parts of the country and different challenges. I get all that. We have taken each cancellation as from the Lord. But uh, the Lord has brought in other meetings. We've solved divine appointments. There's certain things that have happened that have been remarkable. I wouldn't trade for anything. But I feel like I ought to mention this in the month of March. Uh, I work with Christian School Ministry. I have a team with me. We travel and we do the War Special Forces in Christian Schools. And in the month of March, we've had three cancellations. And the trouble with COVID cancellations, they usually come late because the school begins to realize, I don't think they're going to be able to pull this off with whatever different, there's county or city regulations, there are all kinds of regulations, and they are varied all across the country. So I'm certainly understanding of that. But I simply mention that we're in the southeastern part of the United States. I know most the constituency is not from that section of the country. But if there's anyone out here that senses the Lord would be in the team coming, and it doesn't have to be for youth, we're doing revival meetings as well. And I could certainly be glad to talk to you about that. But I mention that just in case there's a divine appointment that God has out here. Okay, we're going to go to Romans chapter number 13 and uh, going to deal with a, uh, what I would consider to be, it's not an easy, it's really not an easy uh, session to preach, it's not an easy session to deal with, but I think it's a necessity. Pastor Van Gelder, and I'm glad he took the time to go over uh, the book uh, that uh, J.D. Unwin wrote in 1938 called Sex and Culture. I remember several times when I was growing up, my dad referring to the book, he referred to it on a regular basis. He's the only preacher I've ever heard refer about it. And a few years ago, I decided, yeah, I wonder if that, there's anything on that book. And I typed it into Google, and there came up some things. I began to read a little bit about the book. And I understand the book is like total research. It's boring. It's dry. It's dusty. It's not anything any one of us would want to read unless we want to go to sleep. Uh, it's kind of one of those things. Uh, that's what I understand. But there's different people who love that kind of stuff. And we have a few people on our college staff that are good at that kind of thing. And, uh, and uh, so there's a few people who have read it, and they, they spit it out in, 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 in ways I can get. And one of those pastor mentioned, a guy named Kirk Dunstan on his blog has written about it. And it was helpful to get the kind of the conclusions of that particular thing. But I just want to just, just briefly review that because it really plays into what we're going to deal with here for a moment. J.D. Unwin wrote that book and uh, 86 cultures. Think about that. 86 cultures he studied and there was not one exception. 
In a hundred years, all 86 cultures were gone. No exception. That means we probably have less than 50, maybe less than 40 years. And the culture's gone. It's like this, when the coronavirus came, the social unrest came, the political unrest came, and all the problems that have come in 2020 and 21, I think a lot of us were shocked at how the deterioration of our culture, like what happened, what happened? But you know what I think our culture was? Our culture was like a tree that has been hollowed out and has been rotting for a long time, but you didn't know it. And a storm came along, and all of a sudden you look out in your backyard and you have a tree down. That never happened to you, it's happened to me. You see, the tree was getting ready to fall for a long time. We just didn't know it. But the circumstances, the storm comes in and boom, it's hollowed, boom, it's the first thing to go down. That's what I think happened in this year. We were already in trouble. It's just some of the challenges we've been through have shown us that our culture is literally rotting from the inside out. And the tragedy, the amazing thing to me is there's no think tank, there's no study that has been given, nobody's studying the fact that we're literally on uh, we're heading to a collision course that the country really is in huge trouble. And so that certainly uh, helps us understand that this is uh, this issue. Uh, and again, the whole issue, Unwin studied, he said the very first thing that always goes in a culture that brings them down is a de-emphasis on prenuptial chastity. You know, the first issue is not adultery. The first issue is they begin to Lessen the restraint on prenuptial chastity, what we would call premarital sexual activity, fornication, the Bible would call it. When that begins to loosen up, it's all over. Though it takes about a generation and a half before it becomes evident that the culture is in huge trouble. The thing, the, the thing when I read Onion that struggles, it strikes me is, the truth is probably I'll die before this happens. But my kids won't. And my grandkids won't. I don't know that we understand that we're in a huge trouble. But with huge trouble, there is always huge opportunity. <laughs> now, some of the statistics, and I, you've heard me give these statistics before, but I just want to kind of remind us of the absolute prevalence of moral impurity in our culture. Um, one statistic the Conquer Series puts out says 70% of all men sitting in evangelical churches on a Sunday morning. Now, evangelical churches is broader than where most of us are comfortable with, but these are churches that preach the gospel. 70% of all men occupying the pews of evangelical churches uh, are uh, struggling with sexual addictions. 70%. I was speaking with one assistant pastor who's a friend of mine, and I said the state, he didn't bat an eye. He said, in our church, it's probably 100 I, I, can't, I do not have a scientific research on this, but I would say when it comes to young men st struggling with sexual addictions in our churches, it's probably up to 90%. I was preaching to some older preachers recently at a wonderful preacher's fellowship down south, and as I was preaching, I mentioned some of these statistics, and I said that I think 90% of all our preacher boys in Bible college are struggling with pornography, at bare minimum, sexual addictions, most of them are pornography. You could, they literally had their mouths wide open. They could not, they just had never been uh, con confronted with uh, the, these possibilities and the reality of our culture. And they mean well, they're good men. So with, with all this, this has brought an immense problem to our culture. For about three years, I've been on the journey and, and I've been uh, talking to young, young men. And of course, when you start preaching on it, people come out and they begin to talk to you about their own issues and struggles. And some of you have been in the conference know I've addressed this now for two years. And I'm not going to revisit the material from last year or the year before where we talked about strongholds. And we talked about giving ground to Satan uh, through bitterness and those kind of things. We won't revisit a lot of that that we talked about. We might reference it, but we're certainly not going to revisit it. But as I've been on this journey, I thought something's still missing. I am missing something. What is the key? I was preaching down at Canaan Baptist Church. Several of the members are here. You say, where is Canaan Baptist Church? They're the people, if you really start preaching, they start really shouting and getting happy. Those are the people. Okay, but anyway, and so I was preaching down at Canaan Baptist Church one night, and I was sitting on the platform, and the Lord said, I want you to preach out of Romans 13. I hadn't preached that message in a long time. I remember preaching that night, and I don't know how to explain it. It was one of those just times you knew God was in the deal, and God began to open my eyes. I said, I think that's the issue. That's the issue. That's the core issue that is killing American culture. And it's found in Romans chapter number 13. 
One of the things my wife and I have been on this journey, my wife does a lot of research and reading on it, and he gives me some of the, the bottom line, which is helpful. But one of the things they say this, if a man, don't miss this, if a man discloses that he's been viewing pornography, many of the books says it takes him bare minimum at least one year, many times two, before he can properly apologize to his wife. Because he is so, he doesn't even realize that along with this particular sin, there are other sins that have crept in that are actually crippling him. It's like this. If you have a problem viewing pornography, God could supernaturally take that problem away today and you'd still have major problems in your life. There are certain diseases, and I know those uh, won't go into all the technical terms, but as I, from a layman's turn, there are certain diseases that disease itself has got issues, but many times the greater issue are its co-infections. So that's why I've entitled the message, The Co-Infections of Moral Impurity, because if our culture has now for 50-some years been embracing moral impurity, which it has, there are some things happening that seem unrelated that are actually very related and are actually destroying culture from the inside out. I remember years ago, I was uh, reading some, something, I can't remember, I think it was a missions magazine or something, and they quoted an atheist. He was a British subject who grew up in Africa. His father was probably some kind of, um, uh, some kind of British official in Africa. And this man said, I'm an atheist. He said, don't get me wrong. I don't believe in God. He said, but I will tell you what Africa needs is Christianity. He said, because wherever Christianity goes, the lying stops, the deception stops, the corruption stops, and culture begins to flourish. Amen. Maybe we in America ought to listen to that. Amen. See. Now, he said, don't get me wrong yet. He said, I don't believe in God. I don't think he exists. That's kind of weird, isn't it? So, uh, let's look at the co-infections. I'm looking here at Romans chapter 13, and let's look at verse number 8. And we're going to start just looking at these verses, just going to walk down through these verses. Really, the first co-infection is the infection of all of them. The other two, I think, kind of come out of this. But for sure, uh, let's talk about the first one. In verse number 8, it says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another, notice this, hath fulfilled the law. So here it is. Number one, co-infection, no doubt about it. This is, uh, how do I say this? This particular sin has to be there when there is a succumbing to moral temptation. Without this issue present, present the person's not going to go for the moral temptation. And that is, number one, selfishness. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away, hang on now, with his own lusts. You see, before you can ever give in to moral temptation, there has to be selfishness. Without selfishness, you wouldn't do it. But here's the problem. When you cave into the selfishness, it's not just the selfishness that exists. Moral, uh, uh, when you get into moral uh, sin or immorality of any kind of nature, or into these moral impurity, maybe put it that way, when you get into moral impurity, guess what happens? Selfishness begins to multiply like it's on steroids. And it begins to invade the life. And so many times, even a man, when he discloses to his wife that he's struggling with sexual addictions, does not realize that his greater problem is selfishness. Right. And he has, he has learned that he, uh, the number one is he's going to please himself, and he's not going to worry about what, uh, the effects on other people. That's what ends up happening, though he may not even think it through that way. Right. Now let's go ahead and read from um, uh, Unraveled, which comes out of Pure Desire Ministry. Some of you are familiar with them. Keep in mind, many of us struggle with sexually compulsive and addictive behaviors, struggle with an addictive tendencies in other areas too. We have to be aware of any behavior that has the potential to facilitate our compulsive needs. In other words, it's like this. Selfishness breeds selfishness, which breeds selfishness. It begins to multiply. Now, I think most of us understand, one of the interesting things in the whole study of moral impurity, and you've heard me use this statistic before, but Dr. Ted Roberts with uh, Pure Desire Ministries put it this way. Uh, I think he said it's about 98%. I could have the exact, but it's, it's almost everybody he's counseled. He said almost every man. He's counseled thousands of men in sexual addictions. He said 98% of them have deep father wounds in their souls. So one of the things that kind of gets you on this whole thing, the dysfunction of the family has created an atmosphere in which young people 
are tempted to go to coping mechanisms. And one of the most available, of course, is uh, visual moral impurity, the issue of pornography. And so, but what happens is, when a, when a young man makes the decision to go into moral impurity, guess what? He becomes a selfish father just like his dad. See, I, it's been a very difficult thing in dealing with this because I don't want to throw kids' parents under the bus, but I've had to say to some young people, hey, listen, if your dad left, I'm going to tell you why he left, because he was selfish. And if your dad had an anger problem, I'll tell you why he had an anger problem, because he was selfish. And if your dad didn't parent you, he was there, he provided your needs, but he never engaged you in a father-son relationship. He didn't do that. He did that because he, he didn't relate to you because he's selfish. See, father wounds come from fathers who never dealt with their issues and they got into moral impurity and the selfishness just, it just brought it right into the marriage and brought it right into parenting. Now, I've learned this about family relationships and I'm sure you've learned it too. Selfishness in marriage doesn't work. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I've teased our Baptist College of Ministry students but I've said, you know, when you get married, you're going to bring a real big problem in a marriage, and it's huge. It's big. It's bigger than you think. You're bringing a big problem. It's called you. Right. <laughs> so you know what happens when people divorce? They bring their biggest problem with them. You know why? Because they're their biggest problem. <laughs> you know what most marriages are like? Two alley cats you throw in a burlap bag and tie it up. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that cats are selfish? Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I know I'm probably offending somebody here. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not an animal hater. No, I mean, I like them fried no matter, you know, whichever way you want to put it, you know. But um, except for rabbits. No, you don't fry rabbits, okay. You love rabbits, okay. That's because my, my youngest has a rabbit, okay. Yeah, we're all about rabbits. My wife taught our rabbit tricks. I'm telling you, our rabbit, our rabbit is the smartest rabbit on planet Earth. He can do tricks. Tricks are for rabbits. Okay, so um, you millennials, you have no idea. You're wondering why the baby boomers are laughing. Okay, yeah. Cats, oh yeah, cats. My dad used to say, you can convert a dog. You can get a dog saved. You cannot get a cat saved. It can't happen. How can I say their nature, you know, that the point is, all animals really, you know, many times they have a survival instinct, but some obviously uh, uh, can be trained otherwise. But, but there is a selfishness that is inbred in, uh, in a man and a woman when they get together. It doesn't work. And, you know, if, if marriage doesn't cure your selfishness, God has another method. It's called children. Amen. And he starts giving you kids. Now, I've got a theory. I can't prove it. I've heard said this at the conference before. I've got a lot of new people, so I want to help you out. I've got a theory. I cannot prove it. I think it's right, though. The more selfishness you have, the more kids God gives you. Okay, so that's how you know how selfish you are. Okay. Now you're watching with some of these tribes that are going around here. You know what's going on. Okay. Okay. I only got three, so I might not be too bad off. Okay, Brother Ingram and I are in about the same boat. Okay, but, but you know, um, I think we all recognize that our own propensity towards selfishness, but the, the, the thing that I'm most burdened that we see this, this morning is this. Even when the people in this room engage in inappropriate moral thinking, wrong thinking or living, it feeds our selfishness. See, it's like this, Father, when you lust, and nobody can see the lust, it's not a small matter. You are actually feeding your selfishness. You're fueling it. See, one of the things this journey has done for me, see, when I grew up, um, you know, pornography was, I, it was there. Uh, my mom warned me about it. In fact, we moved from Durango, Colorado when I was six years old and moved to Chicago, Illinois. I'm talking city limits, south side, Marquette Park. I began going to the Booth Tarkington Elementary School. As a first grader, every cuss word I've ever heard, I heard from the lips of first graders. Not in Durango, in Chicago. Some of the most wicked kids I've ever known were first graders. I mean, they could talk dirty, they could talk bad, they could tell terrible things. And uh, they had a fort they'd build out in the railroad yards and they plastered it with pornography and they would just tell everybody about it and they'd invite me to come and of course I never went 
for several reasons, one of which my parents had a two-block rule, and that was past the two blocks. And, I, and also, I knew in deep in the depths of my heart, I knew my mother had warned me about it. I didn't understand it all. So pornography was around me. It just hardly ever intersected with me as a little boy. I'm convinced that was the prayers of my mother. I'm absolutely convinced. I think she was praying about that thing. She was constantly encouraging me, warning me, understanding the dangers. So that was a different day. It was not, it was there. It was certainly available, but you had to want it. You had to go there. And, and I realize there's some men in this room who are my age who did get exposed to it, unfortunately. And somebody showed you something. I think the, there was one day a guy who had a, some picture on the playground, but it was so beat up and destroyed and whatever, there was hardly anything left. It was never a problem. It was never a provocation. That was the closest I came to it growing up. But you know, today is a different day, isn't it? Because all of us, uh, I have a cell phone here somewhere. Oh, here, here it is. Here the possibility is right here, right here. You know, I used to preach, I used to preach to teenagers on having a TV in their bedroom. And I would preach and I said, now listen, young people, I'm going to make a challenge. If you have a TV in your bedroom and you have never watched anything that offends Almighty God, I said, I want you to come to me and tell me. I made that challenge literally, I would say to tens, tens of thousands, you know, I would, I just guess it, 10, 20, who knows, thousand teenagers all across this country, I made that, that challenge. I only had one teenager come to me. And when he came to me, he was a little cocky, he came up to me, he said, Brother Van Gelderen, I have a TV in my bedroom, I have never watched anything to offend Almighty God. I said, wow, that's pretty good. How have you done that? He said, I've never turned it on. <laughs> oh, okay, that'll work, that'll work. You can have a TV in your bedroom, I'm letting you do it. Okay. Now, everybody has a TV in their bedroom. See? Sometimes when I tell young people come, I'm telling every week we're dealing with young people that are struggling with this thing. Every week. Many things, first thing you've got to deal with is accessibility. Okay, what are you doing? What do we got? We've got to deal with some of this stuff. And, and I'm telling you, there are young men in this room right now, and there are uh, men, men in this room that used to be addicted to pornography who are living in victory and have for several years and now helping other people out of it. And that's absolutely thrilling. But the issue, when I started on this journey, because I was thinking, you know, I really, pornography, it's been, you know, we've all seen pornographic images because we live in a pornographic society. But I've had very little exposure to what we classically call pornography. I just had very little uh, because of my mother and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, and I'm thankful certainly for that. Don't get me wrong. But as I started on this journey, because I realized I've got to study this out because the young people I'm dealing with, this is a big issue. And I'm dealing with them every week, so we got to get on this. So my wife and I have been on about a three-year journey, and some of you have been a part of our journey, and there's other people in the room that are on the same journey. And how can we help people get out of this, this, this immoral filth of our day? And there are many people who have gotten into it to some degree or another, and it's, it's just like quicksand, so addictive so quickly. And, and some of you understand that. But when I got into all this, I began to realize something, and that is this. When I was growing up, I don't think any preachers meant to do this, but when I was growing up, this is the idea I got. I didn't get it from my father, but I did get it from the movement, and here was the idea. Well, you know, every guy's going to struggle with wrong thoughts. Kind of like it was okay to lust a little bit. Now, I'm not going to use the word for it, but self-pleasing would, is just going to use that word and just try to be careful here in the room, but nobody even dealt with that issue. And it was kind of assumed, well, all guys struggle with that. Right. Listen, you could be 16 years old, have victory in your brain and victory in your actions. You know why? Amen. Because Jesus lives in you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be grandstanding. Amen. There are young men in this room that could tell you it has been months before they have succumbed to lustful thoughts. Oh, they've been tempted. They just haven't succumbed to it. You know why? Because they believe the Bible standard is zero tolerance. Amen. Do you know when I preach zero tolerance to college-age young people, it doesn't bring them despair. It puts hope in their eyes. It's not a matter of containing the tiger. It's a matter of killing him. <laughs> See, it's zero tolerance. There are men in this room who preach every Sunday who have, you do not look at pornography, but you have a pornographic brain. See, this is what's killing us. See, this is the topic that we, we all know is there. It's the elephant in the room. We all know it's there. But as I was growing up, our movement didn't deal with it. Right. Right. 
It was kind of the idea, well, men will be men, boys will be boys. You know, I will tell you what, the Bible, as far as I can tell, does not ever give us any kind of license to lust at all. I don't care what, how it's manifested. So for those in this room that are like me, didn't have a lot of exposure to pornography, and that's not your issue, this journey has brought me to understand something. As a man, we all need to have victory in our minds and in our actions. Completely zero tolerance. And I'll be honest with you, the thing that really struck me about zero tolerance was by this guy that does the Conquer series. And again, there's things about it that I would change. He uses, uh, uses versions that I would be nervous, obviously, about and all that kind of stuff. And there are certain things about that. But I will tell you one thing I've appreciated is zero tolerance for lust, zero tolerance, zero tolerance. And I thought to myself, when's the last time I heard a preacher that is so vehement about zero tolerance when it comes to lust? But it's exactly right. <laughs> And there are even young men out here who've bought into it. Well, you know, every guy's going to struggle. Hey, every guy may have a battle, but doesn't mean every guy has to be defeated. Amen. See? And every young man out here needs to understand that one of the greatest things that will teach you sanctification is your battle with the morality issue. I remember my dad, that one thing I appreciated about my dad and my mother is they would always talk about this stuff in the appropriate time, age appropriate, but they would always talk about it. I remember my dad getting up to the men and saying, okay, men, it's bad. I'm thinking the 1970s, that was bad. <laughs> but it was bad compared to the 1950s. And I remember my dad saying, we'd have 30, 40 men on a Saturday morning. And they, always, they would always come because they knew my dad would deal with men's issues that nobody else was talking about. So they would come. And I remember my dad getting up and saying, now, oh, man, it's bad. He said, as a result of how bad it is, we're going to have fewer men in this church who are going to live pure lives. He said, but those of you that learn how to live pure lives will be stronger for it. Amen. I didn't understand what he was saying. It's like this. When you're swimming upstream, if you learn to live in Jesus' strength and you learn to appropriate his power swimming upstream, you will be the better for it. <laughs> I believe that some of these millennials and Gen Z's sitting out right out here who at one time were addicted to pornography or are seeing sustained victory in their life may be a generation of men used of God unlike my generation. They're fighting battles we never had to fought and they're dealing with their passions in a way we never had to deal with on that level. So I'm not throwing millennials and Gen Z under the bus. Don't get me wrong, the generation as a whole has a lot of problems, but I am seeing some very encouraging things. And you're going to start seeing some of these guys leading nationwide movements of purity. And there's going to be some, some amazing things I believe God's going to do. We need to pray for them. Because what I want you to understand is, you're, 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 how do I say this? In the quiet of your own brain, thinking those dirty thoughts, thinking those lustful thoughts, it, it's not a vacuum. It's affecting you. See, all you young guys out here who have an absolute filth for brain, you see, you don't understand you're destroying your future marriage. You know why? Because you're feeding selfishness, and selfishness Amen. is the enemy of your future wife. Yes. Amen. The issue is lust. Don't get me wrong, but it's way deeper than lust. And that's what we have to understand. So what Unwin was seeing, and he didn't understand it, what he was seeing is the proliferation of selfishness destroys a culture. And that's what's happening in any culture who's been destroyed. That's why, like that atheist, understood Christianity brings culture back. Because Christianity deals with self. Bible Christianity does. In a supernatural way, which is the great thrill of it. So, if you got the page there, page, you're going to have to get back to the notes because I... I'm not a real good note guy, but, I, and by the way, let me just tell you, you're going to probably have to fill in blanks. This guy's going to get real confused up here. He's not going to know where I am. And Okay, so just, you know, just, you got the note, you probably know this, but in the back there's a little key you can go and put in all the notes later on. Sometimes I'm thinking to myself, why do I do even do the notes? I don't know why I do the notes. Okay, but anyway, they're there. There's kind of, I'm kind of going by the notes. But then I look out here and see there's some of the big centers and I just get all fired up, forget the notes. <laughs> Well, yeah, there it is, yeah. Yeah, but okay, I got to keep quiet at this moment. I'm thinking all kinds of things. 
I'm thinking it. Okay, good. Okay, so I, I said, I thought a lot of things I didn't say just then. I, I've gotten in more trouble. I, sometimes people say, you shouldn't have said that. I said, you ought to be glad I didn't say everything I did think. Okay, you just ought to be glad. Okay, but. So uh, there on uh, page 34, it says, love gives, selfishness takes. We all know that. Look at this quote there by Dr. Ted Roberts, Pure Desire. Pornography taught me to take, but never to give love. Dr. Ted Roberts is the one who did the Conquer Series, wrote a book, Pure Desire. Many of you that are on the journey are very familiar with his ministry. He's an older man now, but he was a Vietnam vet. And his own description, he said, I was sexaholic, alcoholic, and rageaholic. And he said, I sit in a foxhole in Vietnam while bombs are going off. And his Christian wife sent him a letter, and he got saved in that foxhole. So I think it took him five years, he said, to get free from pornography. Five years. And now he spent the rest of his life helping other men out of the same addictive behavior that was destroying him. He had seven stepfathers, a lot of wounds. He goes through it all. He's very, a lot of his material is very helpful. And uh, you read the book, Pure Desire. It's one of those books. There are some books that deal with the issue of pornography that are pornographic. And I'm telling you, I started reading one. I said to my wife, I'm not reading this. But Pure Desire is not that way. It's blunt, but it's not pornographic. It's not provocative. It's blunt. But it's straightforward, but it's biblical and it'll be helpful. And thank the Lord for that particular book. Other books that are being written that I think are very helpful is, is this kind of an issue is now becoming aware of how big it is. Just so you understand, the statistic is out that 58% of all pastors struggle with sexual addictions. Now that's in the evangelical world. I hope independent Baptists are better, but I'm not sure. I hope. I don't know. So let's go some application. Love gives thanks, selfishness complains. Love gives praise, selfishness takes credit. Love encourages, selfishness discourages. Love affirms, selfishness tears down. See, one of the keys, and I don't have time to fully develop this, but I mentioned in other sessions we've done, one of the keys to parenting, and it's a huge parenting uh, is issue, is the affirmation of a father. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, hang on, hang on now, the son in whom he delighted. So I've said this here at this church. I'll say it, said it at the conference. I'll say it to you. Last time you disciplined your kid when they got up and walked away, did they say, oh my, my parents delighted me? Because they should have. They should have. In other words, discipline needs to come out of, man, I am so delighted in what God's calling your life and what God's going to do. We've got to deal with this because God's going to use you. I don't know about you, that would kind of be kind of fire you up, wouldn't it? That'd be, wow, that's great. <laughs> see, see, that's the idea. But that's not what I'm preaching on, but there it is. Then B, love obeys, selfishness disobeys. Go to the text there, back to the text, and let's just look at something here. I just want you to see real quickly, 8B. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay, now basically what he's saying is two things that you need to understand here. That um, love will, if, if you love other people, you'll fulfill the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you love other people, you will fulfill every commandment. When the Bible says if there be any other commandment, that's a first-class condition, which means it's assuming that it's true. In other words, since there are other commandments, love fulfills them. Okay, so it makes sense like this. Okay, let's just go to that list real quickly. Let's leave the first one, thou shalt not commit adultery. And let's go down the list there, thou shalt not kill. Have you ever noticed that if you love somebody, you don't kill them? Have you ever noticed that? That's why in some of you big families, that's why your kid brother's still alive. Okay, so that's why. Okay, see, see you love people, you don't kill them. Okay, kind of obvious, but there it is. How about this one? Uh, thou shalt not steal. If you love somebody, you will not rip them off. That's why I tell teenagers all the time. You take some money out of your mom and dad's wallet, you don't love your parents. Because you never steal from somebody you love. Amen. You only steal from people you don't love. Yeah. See, that makes sense, doesn't it? See, so uh, uh, you, 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 um, you get that. Okay, so thou shalt not steal. Then it says uh, thou... Um, Thou shalt not bear false witness. If you lie to somebody, you don't love them. I want to tell you right now, teenagers, if you are not forthcoming with your parents, you don't love them. Because if you loved them, you, you wouldn't lie to them. That's See, that's what it's saying there. You're not going to bear false witness. You're, going to lie. You're not going to lie to people. And I will say this, husbands, you won't lie to your wife if you love her. If you lie to your wife, you love yourself. You certainly don't love her. Right. See? Right. And men who lie to their wives for coming to this, to cover up the junk they're doing, do not love their wives. See? 
See, that's, that's another one of the points there. Okay, thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Obviously, it's like this. If you love somebody, you're not going to be jealous of them. <laughs> now, all of us parents get this. You know, my girls have had opportunities I never had. I had wonderful opportunities, wonderful parents, but it was a different day. I mean, the 1960s, we were poor <laughs> compared to the... When I was becoming a parent, 1990s, we were totally poor. My dad didn't have money compared to, uh, not that I've had a lot, but I've had more than my dad did. <laughs> but they, my kids have had different opportunities I didn't have growing up. And do you know, every time I get, girls get to do something I didn't get to do, I'm thrilled. Amen. You know why? Because I love them. And every parent out here knows exactly what I'm talking about. When your kids got opportunities, you're thinking, man, I never got that opportunity. I'm so glad they got that opportunity. That's really neat. Yeah. You only covet people you don't love. See, so God's helping us understand how deep selfishness is. This is the big issue. Okay, but let's go back to the first one. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, I believe this is the whole issue of impurity, which would be mental adultery, physical adultery, even emotional adultery. So let's just look at this. Let, you know, let, uh, let, let James chapter 1, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. We've heard this verse before. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. So if you look at pornography, I'm not trying to be kind. I'm trying to help you diagnose something. You are selfish. Amen. When you fantasize lustful thoughts, you are selfish. Amen. You're going to be tempted to think incorrectly, but when you succumb to lustful thoughts, you are selfish. You don't care about your wife. You don't care about your kids, and you don't care about your grandkids. It's all about you. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Now, I know this is tough stuff, but again, I don't believe that we, again, I, I think we've gotten the, well, boys will be boys. And I will tell you, and some of you college kids need to stop saying that. Well, every guy struggles. Amen. Listen, when you say that, you give the inference that it's okay for a young man to sin in this realm. It's not okay for a young man to think dirty thoughts. It's not okay for a young man to look at women in a sensual way. It's not okay for one, a young man to get involved with self-pleasing. It's not okay for a young man to be looking at filth. It's selfishness. It's not boys will be boys. And we're not going to get men of God until we get some young men who say, I'm not going there. I'm going to fight the battle. And even if I fall, I'm not giving up. We're going to continue to fight the battle. There's got to be a way out of this. There's a God in heaven. There's a Jesus who lives in me. I may not get it figured out, but I'm not giving up till I do. And listen, there are men in this room and young men in this room who have gotten far too into the lie that it's okay. It's okay. We all struggle a little bit. Just don't get too much into it. Now we wonder why we're so powerless. I believe the moral arena is why independent Baptist circles are so powerless, and really everybody else too. You cave into lust, you are feeding selfishness, and you wonder why you have trouble with your wife. By the way, I'm just going to say it right now. You got trouble with your wife, get broken before God, read this book and let it tear you to shreds. <laughs> There's some men in this room that need to be torn to shreds. You know why? You're so selfish to the core, you have no idea. Your wife, and I'm going to just tell you right now, there's not a female on planet Earth that cannot smell selfishness. That's right. Amen. If you think you can be selfish with your wife and get away with it, you've got a problem. <laughs> I don't know what gift God gave them because we men don't have it. But a woman can smell safe selfishness. Okay, ladies, I'm going to let you do it. And all the ladies said, well, that was pretty, that was pretty weak. <laughs> do you know why some of them kept quiet? Because they were sitting next to you, buddy. <laughs> hey, I'm just telling you, men, we are selfish. You know how I know that? If we want it, we're going to do it. <laughs> And I'm preaching to myself as much as anything else. There's something about manhood. And I will tell you, that is not biblical manhood to do what we want to do. Amen. Feed ourselves, could care less about our wife and kids. Right. Don't think about the consequences. Don't think about their lives. Listen, every young man in this room ought to be living for your grandkids. Amen. And you're looking at porn. You're not living for your grandkids. You're living for you right. in the moment. I'm just telling you, we got to deal with this stuff. 
There are young men in this room that every night get in accountability groups and they rate themselves to their accountability groups in four areas. Emotional purity, uh, lust, self-pleasing, I'm just using it that way, and viewing, pornography. And the rating is brutal. If you're driving down the road and you think there might be a sensual billboard and you look at it, you just drop to a nine. If you're driving down the road and there's somebody jogging and you're just going to check to see male or female, you just drop to a nine. That's brutal. But there are guys in this room that will not look at it. They won't check the billboard out. They won't check the jogger out. You know why? They've made a decision. I'm fighting the battle. Have you ever noticed, friends, if you can avoid temptation, you ought to avoid it. And if you can't avoid a temptation, take the way of escape. Which, by the way, friends, the exit is right there. It's not a mile away. It comes with the temptation. So, selfishness, again, if you're not careful in your media choices, you, how about this one? If you flirt with people other than your spouse, you're selfish. Some of you out here, oh, my wife is so picky. She didn't. Listen, if you cared about her, you'd never do anything that could be interpreted as being inappropriate, flirting. You say, come on, well, preacher, what's the difference between flirting and being friendly? That is the dumbest question I ever know because you know, you know. You know the difference. Don't play that game. Come on. So, um, you know, we used to talk to teenagers about flirting. That's not the problem anymore. It's adults. <laughs> flirting, inappropriate. The office. Now it's on the front page every day in the news. <laughs> Didn't think I was going to get political. I was trying not to. Okay. <laughs> you know, our problem with politicians, we're loaded with people who are selfish. They could care less about you. And it's both parties, let's just be honest. Now, one party has more than the other, but I'm not going to tell you which one I think that is. But okay, okay. The other one has a few unselfish ones in it. That's the one I vote for normally, okay. I'm on live stream, so I've got to be careful, okay, anyway. Well, that's just one other thing here before we go to the next one. We're going to have to keep moving here. We're doing fine, but... See, their love protects, selfishness hurts. You ever seen a young couple, uh, or a, you know, unmarried couple, high school couple, say immature couple, they get together and you find out later they were doing some stuff. You know, back when I was in high school, that was the thing. Pornography was not the thing. It was inappropriate guy-girl relationships. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you know, it wasn't going into full-blown immorality, but there would be, you know, uh, the, the necking, kissing. And, I mean, the preachers used to preach on that. A guy named Paul Levine led the way, man. I loved Paul Levine. He preached his famous Blackjack sermon. How many have ever heard the Blackjack sermon? I don't think it's even recorded on the internet. If you haven't, boy, you have missed out on life. Boy, that was, that was back in the day. And, and, uh, but anyway, ever seen a couple like that? They get together, they're, they're inappropriate, and, they, and then they break up. And you know what happens? They're hurt. Do you know why they both got hurt? Because they both were selfish. It wasn't love that brought them to do what they did. It was selfishness. Because love would never do anything to hurt the object of its love. Never would, be, would never do anything. So when something is done that's going to hurt, you can only make the inference that they didn't love them. See, love protects. So a young man, every young man out here, you hear me. If you love a young lady, you will protect her moral purity. You will not take advantage of it. See, you'll, take, you, you'll protect it. See, that's the idea. Okay, which brings us to the number two co-infection, and this is huge. This is ex right there huge with the very first one. We've got to move quickly here, but number one is selfishness. Number two co-infection is deception, deceitfulness, deception. Many times a man who is in moral impurity, whether mentally or viewing, is a man who in order to cover his tracks has to be deceitful. He's got to learn to throw people off the trail. Now this is interesting to me and in some of the study that my wife and I have done. They say that many times a man who gets into viewing pornography about six months to a year after he has full victory needs to sit his family down and age appropriately tell them what the problem is because many children who have a father who's viewing pornography sense a distance between them and the father. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Because the dollar, don't get too close. Don't, you might find out, don't get too close. And the kid blames himself, like, why can't I get close to dad? And what they say is you need to sit down and take full responsibility and say, it is not your fault that you couldn't get close to me. It was that I had secret sin in my life and I wouldn't let you get close to me. See, that's, that stunned me. They said, you got to go about six months a year so that there's full victory there, and, and you're heading over, you don't want to do it a second time. Yeah, right. But uh, so deceitfulness. Now let's look at the passage of Scripture here in verse number 12 and 13. It says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day. So, Walking honestly is in the day. Number one, proper disclosure is a protection. Let us put on the armor of light. If you study uh, this issue of addictive behavior, the moral impurity, the viewing pornography, addictive behavior, if you study it all, you will find that one of the issues that is very helpful in getting victory is disclosure. One of the greatest ways Satan keeps you in addictive behavior is secrecy. That's why some of these young men are seeing victory. I had one young man tell me, he said, I've had four months. I've had a lot of temptation, but I have not one time succumbed to lustful thoughts. You know why? Daily accountability. There are preachers in this room who do not go 24 hours without failure in your brain. And you just got used to it. See, the proper disclosure is a protection. And again, everybody's going to have to figure out where they need to go with this. And there are other, God God is doing something. He's raising up men who are dead serious about this. Men who realize if we don't, our our country's lost, our lives are lost, our family, if we, they really feel like they're uh, on a peninsula and the army's encroaching on them. And if they don't get, they don't get God on this thing and the power of God, they're in trouble. And I think there are young men in this room. I I tell you, there are men in this room that aren't young. That are leading this. There are men who are in a pure, God is raising up a purity movement, and the thing that thrills me today is there's men all over this room. I know you're in it. Amen. And you've given your life to it. Amen. And many of you are so passionate about it because you used to be as addicted as some of the people you're working with, and you've seen Jesus free you, and you're so excited about it, you want other people to get free. Amen. <laughs> there's just men in the room, it wouldn't be appropriate, but there's men in this room I could bring to this platform right now, and they would tell you stories that make your skin crawl about how addicted they were to filth, and now they're free. And have been. It's unbelievable. I'm telling you, it is unbelievable. And there are people in this room that have been freed in unbelievable ways that it's hard to go into. I don't know everything about everybody. I do know a handful in this room. And I'm so excited about them, I could, I don't even know how to explain it. I'm so excited about what God's doing in, in and through them. But they would all tell you the proper disclosure was a very difficult, someone has put it this way about disclosure, it will be the worst day of your life and it will be the best day of your life at the same time. It's the worst day of your life and the best day of your life. And that is, wow, I thought that was pretty well put. And and that was in a book I read, and I thought, wow, that was very helpful. But also notice the proper disclosure is a protection, but it's a lifestyle. Let us walk honestly. Now, you'll have to figure out how you're going to do it. I know how several young men are doing it and how God is helping them. But you'll have to figure out how you're going to do it. But I will tell you this. Uh, if you've got a problem, then you're going to need to understand walking honestly in the day is a very important issue. <laughs> um, there's a quote by Weist you can read a little bit later. Now, let me give you a quick application of this. I was reading a book about, uh, written by a man who was a pornographic addict. He disclosed to his wife, and he, he writes his journey. And it's, it's a painful book to read. It was appropriately written, but it was painful. But as he, he said, the thing that made it for his wife was this. He said, I made a decision. I'm going to so fully disclose to my wife about my actions that she will not have to ask questions. I'm not going to put it on her to ask questions. I'm going to tell her. So he says, okay, you notice I was 15 minutes late. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. And of course, he had a terrible record, track record. And he began to, he began to take steps toward just being fully honest with his wife, exactly where he was going, what was happening, about the computer, staying up late, getting up in the middle of the night. He was fully disclosing what was going on. And he rebuilt trust. So much so that I think it was two years later, his wife said, I never thought I could say this, but I am so glad you went through the trial you went through because it has made you a different man. She said, I never thought I could say that. 
So disclosure is obviously fighting deceitfulness. See, men who get into deception are so good at it, they don't even realize they're doing it. They know how to cover their tracks. They know how to look good. They know how to do it. They know how to play the game. They know how to live double. They know how to do it. So I can't challenge any young man who's done it. Whenever there's any tendency toward deception, you've got to go after it. And you have got to now change it, renew your mind so that you're living in full disclosure. You're walking honestly as in the day, disclosing to the right people at the right time, etc. The people love you, the people that care about you. Now there's some, some of the deeds of darkness there. I want to give you four areas. One of them is not on there. I thought of it later in a conversation with somebody. Covering sin obviously is the big one. Because people into moral impurity learn how to cover it up. They learn how to keep you know, people off, change the history. I don't understand all that stuff, but they know how to do it. So covering sin, as uh, Seven Pillars there says, all addicts tend to keep secrets. When we seek to protect secrets, we establish a pattern of life. The result, protecting those secrets becomes Lord to us. So covering sin has got to go. Totally got to go. Number two, blaming others. When one blames another, he's refusing to take responsibility for his own sin. Now, could I put it this way? I, I'm going to say this, and I, and I want you to understand this. I'm going to be, this is hard to say. But for the one person or maybe more in this room that needs it, I've got to say it. If you blame your wife for your pornographic addiction, that is low. Amen. Yes, sir. Amen. That is one of the most low, yes. I mean, selfish, unbelievable things a man could ever do to blame his wife for his sexual addictions. And I want to tell you, you need to get broken. You need to repent before God. Blaming others is trying. It's part of your deceptive cycle. You have to break it. And the only way you can break it is stop blaming others for your issues and take full responsibility. And when you do, you will find that God walks through the door. He gives grace unto the humble. I'm just begging you, if you have ever even inferred or blamed your wife for any of your sexual issues, you need to go back and apologize broken. It only illustrates that the co-infection has gotten you. You have gotten into darkness, deception. You don't even see it. Amen. See, the tragedy with deception is you first of all know what you're doing, and then you don't even know what you're doing. So you're deceived by your own deception. Then the next one is wearing masks. I was wondering, preacher, why not a lot of people wearing masks? I know that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Honestly, I could preach a whole session on masks, and some of you could do. Do you know what happens when people have a secret life? They act like there's somebody that they're really not. Do you know one of the problems of social media? And uh, I realize, uh, but this is one of the major problems of social media, is you create a persona that doesn't exist. Here's a couple of things on masks that are very helpful in some of the research. As I went through the process of healing from a broken, a broken marriage and eating disorder and alcohol abuse, my eyes were open to the fact that I had been wearing a mask, not just one mask, but several masks. Since my teen years, masks were that which I used to cover my pain, shame, and fear. I not only wore masks that covered my feelings, but masks that helped me become someone else, someone I thought others would like better. The very things we are desperately seeking, unconditional love and acceptance, actually become unattainable when we put on masks. The feelings of emptiness continue because only the mask receive the love. Deep down we fear the, feel the fear of if they real, knew the real me, they wouldn't love or accept me. See, when you're a mask and everybody likes you, you wonder, is it the mask or me? It's probably the mask. See, so that's another part of deception. And last of all, manipulation. Men in addictive behavior are manipulative. And by the way, 30% of all women sitting in evangelical churches are struggling with sexual addictions as well. 30%. Dealing with young ladies that are dealing with pornography is not an, an, an unusual issue today. So these issues are there. Manipulation, okay. So, and uh, much could be more said about manipulation, but... Then, of course, it's got these duets of darkness that God brings up. Let's just mention them quickly because I want to get to the final point, which I think we'll have plenty of time to, uh, to give here. In verse 13, it says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. These are what I would call the duets of darkness. But they're all selfish. 
Now, of course, substantive abuse. Not in writing and drunkenness. Writing, of course, there is talking about that drunken uh, drink, drinking parties that would uh, have unrestrained indulgence there and alcoholic beverages there, according to one commentator. Okay, so the idea is something. So it's like this. People who get drunk are selfish. People who abuse prescription drugs are selfish. People who use illegal drugs are selfish. That's what God's saying. Now he goes to the next one. Uh, not in chambering and wantonness. Since the whole message has been preached on this, there's not a whole lot more I need to focus on that. But obviously all aspects of moral filth, sexual sin, God says are because they're selfish. All aspects uh, uh, come because of selfishness. When people uh, get involved in that outside of the bonds that God intended it for it to be, the marriage, the intimacy God created for marriage. Outside of that, God says it is selfish. And then uh, last of all, not in strife and envy. Now I hate to mention it. I really do because this one's rough too. My problem is it's been around too long. It was nice when your young preacher didn't know what to apply because you never really heard it was going on. <laughs> Do you realize that Christian moms and dads fight? Did you realize that? <laughs> Do you realize this? They fight. Don't miss this. In front of their kids? Now, I'm going to say this right now. If you're a kid in this room and your parents fight in front of you, they are dead wrong. And it is as wicked and as selfish as you can imagine. And don't think it's normal because it's not. It is not Bible Christianity. And any parent in this room who fights in front of their kids ought to get broken before Almighty God. It is as wicked as can be. I deal with the fallout every week. I can't believe that Christian moms and dads would actually put down their spouse in front of their kids. I can't believe that. I cannot believe that. Listen, if you've got problems, deal with it behind closed doors. But don't air your laundry in front of your kids and mark them for life. It is so selfish when parents have strife and envying in front of their kids. It is as selfish. I cannot listen. If you think I'm being rough, I don't think I'm being half as rough as I need to be. It is as wicked as I can think of. It mars kids. It scars them. It hurts them. And I'm telling you, God's people ought not do that, John. See, it's just selfish. That's what it is. But the reason it's selfish is because they've had other areas of selfishness. They don't care about the kids. See, so God's helping us understand. I don't know about you, this is a brutal passage. That's when God says, not chambering and wantonness. He's saying the whole, you look at filth, we've already said it, you're selfish. You lust, you're selfish. Any kind of immoral things you allow in your life, you're selfish. You go to Fox News because you know at the back, the bottom, there's going to be a few sensual pictures, but you're looking at the news, but you know deep down why you're going there to the bottom. Listen, conservative news sites are probably more filthy than the liberal ones. See, the point is, you know why you go there. I'm talking to men in this room, you're not going there for the news. You're going there as that's an excuse so you can get down to the picture. So, um, that brings us then to the final co-infection. And this is obviously key. Number three, unbelief. Number one, selfishness. Number two, deception. And number three, unbelief. Now, notice if you would please, we're going to leave the passage just for a moment. It says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 14. And we're going to um, uh, talk about that here in a moment. But faith, uh, I want us to talk about a verse of Scripture. Don't turn for time. It's in your notes, so let's just read it. Uh, you can, uh, I'll read it. You look. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which been before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Now let me just cut to the chase. I've got the notes in there, but let me just cut to the chase. The idea of this is this. When you push off your conscience and you say, God, and of course I believe the Spirit of God uses the conscience often in, in a believer's life. But when you push off your conscience, here's what you're doing. You're shipwrecking your faith. The Spirit of God says, you shouldn't look at that. Don't go there. Don't think that. Don't look at that. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. And you push it off. You destroy your faith. One of the greatest tragedies of looking at pornography is you are shipwrecking your faith. If you can't believe God when he says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes, how are you going to believe God when he says, ask and you shall receive? Amen. So you shipwreck your faith. See, you don't think that that lustful, that 20-minute run on the lustful thoughts is a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal because you're pushing away your conscience. 
and you're shipwrecking your faith. There are men in this room that you try to believe God, you just can't believe God. I'm going to tell you why, because your faith is in absolute shambles, but it's not God's fault, it's yours. Amen. Now, I got good news for you. God can build the thing back. But it's killing us. I believe the moral issue is killing us. It's killing independent Baptists. It's killing the evangelical world. And I'm going to tell you, you know why some of our independent Baptist boys leave and go out and go to, you know, become a loosey-goosey, everything goes, come as you are, leave as you were. You know why some of them go there? I'm going to tell you why. You compromise at 30 because you were compromising at 13. You know what I've learned about the Bible? If you do church right, it doesn't work. Unless God shows up. New Testament Bible Christianity doesn't work without God. So what happens if you grieve God? You might have to go to Madison Avenue. What do you think? Just a theory of mine. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know. I've just wondered. Are some of these guys who came from such great situations, well, maybe they were compromising. Maybe they hurt their faith. I, there are certain men, and I won't tell you who they are, but if I see them, you know what my first question is? Wants to be, these are preachers. Young preachers, you know what my first question is? When's the last time you looked at pornography? You say, why would you ask that question? Because something ain't smelling right. Something ain't looking right. Yeah. Something's not right. Like, why have you changed? I know you. Yeah. Something's, something's not right. Amen. So, faith gets shipwrecked. Now, go back to the passage. How does our faith get restored? God gives us unbelievably two, just two simple commands that really give us the answer. And with this, we'll have to, to land the plane. Two simple things. Number one, faith restored. B, trusting God in our position. Now, there in Romans 13, it says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. But in Galatians chapter 3, notice it says a statement, indicative. It says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. So the question would be, why would God tell you to put on Jesus if you already have? You've been baptized into Jesus, saved? If you have, God says you put on Christ. So why would he come along, Romans 13, clearly written to believers. So why would he come along and say, now listen, you need to put on Christ if he says you already have. That's a great question, but the, that's in, all through the Bible. So I like what this guy Utley says, so I would kind of tweak some things a little bit. But he says, the tension between the indicative statement referring to Galatians 3.27 and the imperative is the tension between our position in Christ and our striving, I would say resting, but anyway, our striving to possess that position, our trusting maybe. So its point is this, what Jesus, I believe, or what God is saying here is, don't you know this? When you got saved, you put on Christ, so live like it. <laughs> in other words, friends, you and I, I know I'm just going to be able to touch on this, but you and I are in union with Jesus. Jesus is in you, Jesus is in me, and we're in Jesus. Hallelujah. And I don't have time to explain it, but I will say this, every truth you need about your further growth and development is all twined up in the fact you're in union with Jesus Christ. Amen. God says, believe it. It's the theological part of the answer. It's practical, but it's theological too. You need to understand who you are in Christ. You say, well, preacher, I'm not sure I get all this. Okay, listen to all the sessions last year on the True Identity Conference because you can take the True Identity Conference and put it in that one statement. You got it. Okay, that's it. That was what it was all about. How to live who you are in Christ. Okay, now, the next one, practical. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You say, what does that mean? That's exactly what I was talking about some of those young men. Don't give your flesh an inch. See, the problem why we are defeated is we concede to the flesh a little. Ah, you know, boys will be boys. Yeah, every guy struggles. And you give that much concession to the flesh, it'll take it. God said, here's what you're going to do with the flesh. Crucify it. <laughs> Don't give it an inch. Deal with it strongly. It's like this, because once you cave into the flesh, you're in trouble. I've used this illustration before. There's a camp. I've been up, up uh, in Colorado in, in June, and this creek is racing through the camp. It's melted snow, and there's still avalanche snow piles at this camp. And they'll sometimes say to the kids, no, don't get in that creek. It's like 33 degrees, and it'll knock you off the feet, and it'll take you downstream 100 yards, drop you 100 feet, then it'll drop you a second time 100 feet, and we'll pick your body up down in Marble, Colorado. So basically, they're saying to the kids, now listen, here you've got a couple of options. You can get in the creek and die, or you can stay out of the creek and live. Your choice. 
You know, teenagers are real dumb. I work with teenagers. They're real dumb. But I've never seen one yet be that dumb. <laughs> I've been in that camp multiple times. See, what God is saying is, don't give the flesh an edge. You get it. Your decision is not whether, okay, I'm going to get in for a while, mess around with the flesh, then I'm getting out. No, that's not your decision. God says your decision is whether or not you're going to give in to the flesh in the first place. Make not provision for the flesh. Say, I'm not going there. Now, everyone in this room has to apply that differently. There's some men in this room who have to take precautions that other men do, but, but don't. But everybody in this room has to have say, reason, ways they're not going to make provision for the flesh. Does it make sense? Everybody does. I don't know what you need, but you do. God will show you. Get with your pastor. There's a way. There's a way out. And much more we could say about this because this is where the practical comes in. But for time's sake, let me just conclude with this. Because when it really comes right down to it, the real issue of the flesh is selfishness. So why selfishness kind of invades the whole passage, though deception and unbelief are certainly a part of it. So let me just conclude with this. I remember several years ago hearing this story, and uh, there, was, uh, there was a man a couple of men who were in an alpine situation. This would probably be like Switzerland or like the Canadian Rockies, something like that. And they, they got caught in a whiteout. We have a few friends from down south. They have no idea what I'm talking about. They think I'm talking about a little bottle like this. But anyway, and, uh, so, uh, but anyway they, got, they got caught in a whiteout. Now, if you know anything about whiteouts, they're dangerous, particularly when you're in the, out, out in the nowhere because there's no, you've got to stay on the path because if you get, the forest all looks the same, you're going to freeze to death. They were on their way to a village. They knew if they got to the village, they would survive. And they were helping each other navigate the path, very concerned. They knew their lives were at stake. And as they were coming uh, down the pathway, they came to a hump in the snow. Of course, being mountain men, they knew what it was. They dusted it off. It was a fellow traveler. They took his pulse. He was still alive, but barely. He was suffering hypothermia. The one man said to the other, we can't rescue this guy. We've got to save our own skin. There's no way, man. We, I, we, we, and the other guy said, no, we can't leave him. He's alive. We've got to try. He said, if you want to try, you try. He said, i got to save my skin. I'm going. And so he goes on. And the guy just couldn't, couldn't leave him. So he picked him up, put a leg here, an arm here. And, and he begins to walk. And it's not long before his muscles are screaming in rebellion. And he, every step is screaming with pain. And he begins to sweat. He was before was freezing cold. Now he's sweating, trying to carry this guy. And he noticed as his body heat began to intensify, it warmed the other guy up. And the other guy kind of turned to a hot water bottle. He went back up to 98.6, you know. And they're kind of, they're both now eating each other. But it's excruciating pain. And he, he knew he couldn't stop. He wanted to, but he kept going slowly. And finally, he came across another hump in the snow. I thought, oh, great. I, well, I, I at least checked. So he puts the guy down, knew he couldn't stop long. He didn't even have time to brush him off, just went in there, found his wrist, ice cold. Guy's dead. He thought, well, at least I better find out his identity, at least do something so I can let the village know. And he dusted him off. You know what he found? It was his fellow traveler. The one that lived to save himself died. And the one who lived to rescue another lived. Wow. <laughs> Selfishness, you think, will kill you, but no. I mean, unselfishness, you think, will kill you. No, unselfishness won't kill you. Selfishness will. Amen. It's unselfishness when you live. Dads, why don't you start being a dad? That's good. Come on. Come on. Why don't you start being a husband? Why don't you reach out to your own kids? Why don't you live for the next generation? And you know what? You're going to live. Amen. And stop living for yourself. Amen. 